Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In 4 weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose 1 to 2 pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delight, show 150. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, hope everyone is fine, fine and dandy. Give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. Big announcement, big announcement straight away. Then coming up we have fact article by Amy H. Sturgis. Looking back at genre history. Then we have the main fiction which is Personal Jesus by Paul de Filippo. We've got ourselves a great new narrator as well on board for Starship Sova who is reading Paul de Filippo's Personal Jesus, Randall Swartz. Then we have the third and final installment of The Barons by F. Paul Wilson. Then we have more fiction, a writer by the name of Hugh Cook, who is supposedly massive down New Zealand way, and we'll have a little introduction about Hugh Cook as well. So that is Starship Sofa's Oral Delights, show 150. Just before the big announcement, check out this month's cover art by Gino Moretto. Gino simply got in touch with Starship Sofa and offered up his wares. What a fantastic bit of artwork. Gino, thank you so much. I'll put a link on Gino's site. Do pop over there and have a look. First up then, the big announcement, the very big announcement. Release date for Starship Sofa's stories, volume 2 is going to be 10/10/2010. How about that for a date? <laughs> to be quite honest, I missed it completely. I was seeing a D. We'll go for the third week in October, and it was D that spotted ten, ten, twenty, ten. Sounds a hell of a lot better than the third week and third spearman on the left. <laughs> 
So that is the release date for Starship Sova's Volume 2. And with this announcement, I thought it'd be nice to actually play one of the stories in this collection. And it is Paul DeFilippo's Personal Jesus. So look out for that. And that's one of the stories in there. And with Volume 2... Like I say, we give ourselves a lot of time to kind of prepare for this volume. And we wanted to make different editions, you know, and have extras in there as well. So if you pop over to the forums, you'll see Dee's trying to put up little snippets of little extras that we're trying to get in or what we have got in. You'll not see everything there, but they're just little glimpses of what could be coming in volume two in like the special editions. And then, God, there's more... (laughs) Then there's going to be 25 copies where every copy has every author's signature. And like I say, some of these authors we've got are massive. Do you know what I mean? Right up there. And I've got like the, the kind of the real autographs. I've had to send away and get them autographs back and Dee's mounting them up. So there's going to be 25 copies of Starship Sova's Volumes 2, which will be totally one off. <laughs> Totally one-offs, but there's 25 of them, if you know what I mean. So there's going to be more news as we're kind of roll out this release date. Josh is busy building a site, and we're going to get that site up and running as soon as possible as well. So lots to look out for with Volume 2, and you can be assured I will be blathering on about it as much as possible. So first up, Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back in Genre History, Ames. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. On August 20th, 2010, one of my very favorite literary dudes, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, turns 120. I certainly can't do justice to Lovecraft in one of my short segments, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to try. So here is my whirlwind tribute to H.P. Lovecraft. Any examination of Howard Phillips Lovecraft, the author and champion of weird fiction, whose continuing influence on the genres of science fiction, fantasy, and horror cannot be overstated, should begin with Providence, Rhode Island, in the United States, where Lovecraft was born on August 20th, 1890, and where he died of intestinal cancer on March 15, 1937. It was among the colonial buildings of Providence that Lovecraft learned his fascination for architecture. It was in its history and native lore where he learned his love of antiquarianism, and it was in its night sky and from its observatories that Lovecraft began his lifelong fascination with astronomy. All three of these things, architecture, antiquarianism, and astronomy, played significantly into his fiction. In fact, Lovecraft set some of his most famous stories, such as The Call of Cthulhu, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, and The Shunned House, in Providence, using specific addresses and buildings as the backdrop for his tales. He went so far as to create a fictional parallel world to Providence and its major university, Brown University, in Arkham, Massachusetts, and Miskatonic University, which he also used as the setting for a number of his stories as well. Lovecraft was a precocious, intelligent, and sensitive only child. 
He was raised primarily by his apparently overprotective and dominating mother and his maternal grandfather, whom he adored, as his father was institutionalized when Lovecraft was only three, and later died, almost certainly of a form of neurosyphilis. With his grandfather's encouragement, Lovecraft was reciting poetry by the age of two, reading by the age of three, and writing by the age of seven at the latest. By that age, he had already devoured the Arabian Nights and children's versions of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And then he discovered science, chemistry, and astronomy. By 1899, he was publishing the Scientific Gazette for distribution among his friends. He later went on to write scientific columns, mostly in astronomy, for a number of regional newspapers. While still a teenager, Lovecraft suffered a number of difficulties. His grandfather died. He and his mother were forced to move from the home in which he had been born to less spacious accommodations because of financial concerns. And Lovecraft suffered a nervous breakdown. Because of his illnesses and psychological issues, in fact, Lovecraft never graduated from high school, much less college. From 1908 until 1913, he was pretty much a hermit. But when he eventually emerged from his period of self-imposed isolation, he did so in an interesting way. He became involved with amateur press associations, first because he wrote into one of the pulp magazines complaining about one of the stories and became pulled into an extended and sophisticated debate about the nature of fiction. He was invited to join the United Amateur Press Association and did so, and even began publishing issues of his own paper, The Conservative, from 1915 to 1923. He ended up serving as the president of two of the amateur press associations. More importantly, he was publishing essays, reviews, and poetry in amateur journals. Eventually, these amateur publications became the first outlet for Lovecraft's fiction. He published The Alchemist in the United Amateur in 1916. This publication success led him to spend increasing amounts of time writing his fiction. By 1923, Lovecraft had a regular market for his stories after selling some of his works to the popular pulp magazine, Weird Tales. Others later were published in Amazing Stories, Astounding Stories, and Tales of Magic and Mystery. After an unsuccessful marriage and a brief relocation to New York, the last ten years of Lovecraft's life found him back in his native Providence in a period of his greatest artistic flowering. In these years, he wrote such works as The Call of Cthulhu, At the Mountains of Madness, and The Shadow Out of Time, as well as voluminous correspondence with a number of young writers, and a remarkable bibliographic essay and defense of weird fiction called Supernatural Horror in Literature. His publications in the amateur and pulp press left him with many avid readers and good friends as well, but with little money. He in fact died nearly destitute in 1937 without ever seeing a published collection of his works, convinced that his writings would soon be forgotten. This, however, was not the case. In fact, two of his friends, August Derleth and Donald Wandre, authors in their own right, 
were determined to preserve and publish Lovecraft's works. And so they founded Arkham House, named after the fictional town of Arkham, Massachusetts, as found in his stories, a press that continues to thrive today. And they published The Outsider and Others as a hardback in 1939. Other volumes followed, first from Arkham House and then from other presses, and Lovecraft was translated into a number of different languages. His reputation has never been greater. Today, volumes of his stories, poems, essays, and letters are available, as well as a number of scholarly explorations of his work, his influence on genre literature, and his legacy in popular culture. Although his works straddle the boundaries of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, they are united by several common themes, one of which is Lovecraft's cosmicism, his view of the universe and humans' place in it. Fritz Leiber, Jr., called Lovecraft a literary Copernicus because the influence of astronomy led Lovecraft to look outward rather than inward. Leiber says, Howard Phillips Lovecraft was the Copernicus of the horror story. He shifted the focus of supernatural dread from man and his little world and his gods to the stars and the black and unplumbed gulfs of intergalactic space. In other words, science taught Lovecraft to view the universe as very, very big and humanity's place in it as very, very small, with humanity being inconsequential and impotent in the face of these external cosmic forces. A good example of this comes from The Call of Cthulhu. I quote, The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance, in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little, but some day the piecing together of dissociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. As Dirk W. Mozick has noted, the cast of characters that Lovecraft created to people his stories alien gods such as Cthulhu and Yogg-Sothoth, their mere avatars for the impersonal forces of the universe and all their capriciousness, power, and inevitable triumph. A second theme that runs through Lovecraft's work is entropy. Part of this is tied to his antiquarianism, his firm conviction that things were better in the past. In fact, he viewed himself as a stranger in his own century. His writings often depict the gradual decay of time-honored habits, traditions, and even people into confusion and decrepitude. Some of his tales follow the degeneracy of a group of people or even a family into deformity and idiocy as their own weaknesses turn them into vessels or victims of terrible external powers. It's rather bleak material, although remarkably compelling. The so-called decadent Waitleys of the Dunwich Horror are one example. So, too, are the residents of Innsmouth in The Shadow Over Innsmouth. 
He returns again and again to the idea that the sins of the ancestor revisit themselves on the descendant, and it is in this theme that some of his less than admirable assumptions about race and ethnicity come into play. For example, he uses miscegenation as a metaphor for entropy. Different peoples intermarry, and the product is something less than what each group was before. Certainly, he was enamored of his own Norse heritage and considered the Anglo-Saxon people the best example of humanity in every possible way. But then again, that isn't saying all that much because he didn't think all that highly of humanity in general, considering us all as rather accidental blips on the radar of the cosmos. And while he felt free to make generalizations about races and ethnicities, the virtue of his own, the vice of others, his concern seemed much more about how immigrant groups, with their own languages, practices, beliefs, and ideas, would change the nature of the community he loved than anything else. He saw no contradiction, for example, in his views and his marriage to an Eastern European Jew, because. She chose to assimilate into the culture that he revered. In some ways, his views on race matched those of many of his time, but in other ways, they came specifically from his fascination with the past, with his own personal heritage, and with the idea of trying to find something stable and unchanging in a world of constant change. Lastly, his works are united by a common emphasis on mood. He believed that one of the ultimate achievements of weird fiction was to create a certain mood, a certain atmosphere, and he did this through his diction, choosing archaic words, words that were designed to evoke certain emotional and intellectual responses in the reader. Also, with description, particularly his description of architecture and the way this mirrored. The larger issues of the story, for example, crumbling houses representing externally the decay within. The stories are also united by a common depth, by creating a sense of a larger history behind his works. For example, he, in many cases, refers to tomes of forbidden lore. Other works, such as the dreaded Necronomicon by the mad Arab Abdul Alhazred, a fictional work, but by referring to different fictional works, sometimes across a number of different stories, Lovecraft created the notion of an ancient and overarching history, a sophisticated and complex mythology. It is in this mythology that. One of the most important aspects of Lovecraft's legacy resides. What is today called the Cthulhu mythos, although Lovecraft himself never used the term, is a collected series of shared universe stories based on the worlds that Lovecraft first created in stories such as *The Call of Cthulhu*, in which a pantheon of incredibly old extraterrestrial entities. Threaten the future of humanity. Over the decades, a number of writers have built on Lovecraft's work and written in this mythos. Some of whom knew Lovecraft and were mentored by him, such as Fritz Leiber Jr., who went on to write the Fawford and the Grey Mouser series, and Robert Bloch, who went on to write Psycho, among other novels, and contemporary bestsellers who were born after Lovecraft's death. 
including Stephen King and Neil Gaiman. In the 20th and 21st centuries, Lovecraft's writings have become the basis for role-playing games, the inspiration for bands and entire theme albums, and the source material for a number of film adaptations. With reprints, annotated editions, and new scholarly explorations of his work, H.B. Lovecraft has never been more popular than he is today. In the words of Neil Gaiman, Lovecraft is a resonating wave. He's rock and roll. Fortunately, many of Lovecraft's works are now available online. If you would like to avail yourself of the best of recent Lovecraftiana, I would recommend the two-volume I Am Providence, The Life and Times of H.P. Lovecraft by the preeminent H.P. Lovecraft scholar S.T. Joshi, which comes out in August 2010. Also, recently, Joshi has edited a volume called Black Wings, New Tales of Lovecraftian Horror, which showcases some of the best recent work inspired by Lovecraft stories. At the end of 2009, Ellen Datlow also edited an excellent collection called Lovecraft Unbound. I would also recommend taking in the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, which you can find through iTunes and at hppodcraft.com, and the Cthulhu Podcast, which you can find through iTunes and cthulhupodcast.blogspot.com, both of which offer excellent readings of Lovecraft's works as well as commentary on them. Some of my comments in this tribute ran in 2009 as part of the SF Zine podcast's tribute to Lovecraft's story, The Rats in the Walls. Other comments are brand spanking new. I hope you've enjoyed this tribute, and I hope you check out some Lovecraft soon. Just remember, if you find yourself gibbering in madness as you descend into the dismal pit of insanity, it's totally not my fault. I look forward to joining you again soon for another look back into genre history. There you go, Amy. Thank you so much. We're going to listen to a little bit more of Amy later on with her part three, The Final Barons by F. Paul Wilson. Next up is Main Fiction by Paul DeFilippo, a firm favourite of Starship Sova. And like I say, he's in Starship Sova's Volume 2. A great writer, you know, a quirky writer. Love him to bits. We've played a couple of Paul's stories and I've got a few more of Paul's stories ready to go as well. Link on to Paul's site. It is narrated by a fantastic narrator who goes by the name of Randall Swartz. Randall actually just got in touch again and says, you know, I can I fancy myself as a bit of a, a narrator. Do you fancy giving us a go? And I said, sure, send us some of your, your wares. What a fantastic narrator this guy is. Brilliant. He also runs Floss Weekly over there with Leo Laporte at the Twit Network. Floss Weekly is all about free... Open source software. This week on Floss Weekly, they had Viata, which is an open source router software based on Linux. Apparently, takes advantage of modern processing power to control your data movement. So, if that all tickles your fancy, please go over there and say hello to Randall, because honestly, cracking narrator, and he's just delivered one hell of a narration for another story coming up very, very soon. Randall, thanks for this great narration. Thank you so much, sir. So, Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present 
Personal Jesus by Paul DeFillibo. Despite all assurances by experts to the contrary, Shepherd Crooks suspected that his God pod was defective. If it were operating as it should, wouldn't his life be as perfect as the lives of all the other happy citizens of the world? Wouldn't his mind and soul be at peaceful ease? Wouldn't he exist in a permanent state of grace? Sitting at his kitchen table this bright July morning, a Friday, prior to leaving for his job at the Sheaf and Swallow, Shepard studied his God pod as it sat innocuously on the table. A white plastic case big as a pack of cigarettes and stuffed with quantum-gated hardware, the little box featured absolutely no controls or readouts, not even a power switch. Accompanying it was a little matching wireless headset, earpiece and microphone, that interfaced with the God pod through a conventional Bluetooth connection. There was no way Shepard could possibly troubleshoot the God pod. It came from the factory preset and permanently activated. It drew inexhaustible power from the same zero-point energy that had alleviated the planet's energy crisis and ushered in the material utopia to accompany the near-seamless spiritual paradise engineered by the God pods. In short, the device was as inscrutable and as inviolate as the deity it contained or channeled. Shepard's God Pod had just come back from the manufacturer with a clean bill of health. He had no recourse other than to accept it as perfect. That is, unless he chose to do without it entirely, which was unthinkable. So, with a slight nervous twitch of his shoulders, like a horse shrugging off a fly, Shepard slid the God Pod into his belt holster and snugged the headset into his ear. Almost instantly, Shepard's personal Jesus spoke to him. It's good to be in touch with you again, Shepard. Shepard spoke in the sotto voce tones which everyone employed with his or her godpod. I, I'm glad to be talking to you again, Jesus. Is anything troubling you at the moment, child? Ah, uh, no, not really. Then I will await your next words to me. Walk in love. Thank you, Jesus. Shepard arose and cleared away the remains of his breakfast. He brushed his teeth, grabbed his universal arfid chop on its lanyard—he was old-fashioned enough not to have it implanted—and set out on foot for the nearby café where he worked as a barista. Shepard's neighborhood was immaculate and in fine condition, every lawn razored trim, every mailbox proudly decorated, every gutter free of debris and litter. The residences and storefronts were scrubbed and shiny. Cheerful pedestrians strolled to work or school or play. Many of them were engaged in whispered conversation with their own godpods, but an equal number chatted eagerly amongst themselves. At the intersection of Fourth and Hope, Shepard witnessed a minor accident between two silently powered autos. Juggling a hot drink, the driver of one car neglected to obey a stop sign. The other driver, with the right-of-way, was already halfway through the intersection. The errant driver clipped the rear bumper of the other car. Immediately, numerous automatic safeguards within the little vehicles kicked in, cushioning the drivers and immobilizing both cars. The drivers emerged unhurt and smiling. They nodded politely to each other while murmuring to their godpods. Then they introduced themselves, shook hands, exchanged insurance information via the ARFIDs, climbed back into their cars, and drove away. No police or other authorities arrived, nor were they needed. In fact, Shepard's medium-sized city boasted a force of only nine police officers, and that number was divided evenly across three shifts. 
Shepard continued on foot to the sheaf and swallow. The cafe's mock Tudor facade projected a welcoming ambience, and patrons were already thronging the entrance, despite the early hour. Sliding inside through the crowd, Shepard passed beyond the counter. His arfid automatically clocked him in as he tied his apron on. Within minutes, he was fashioning complicated caffeinated drinks with the aid of a burly, hissing machine and the help of his co-workers, including the petite and perky Anna Modesto. Then, as he frothed a dented tin pot of milk, his godpod spoke to him. Jesus said, "'Shepherd, I believe there is a very good chance you will be enjoying intercourse tonight with Miss Modesto.'" When engineers at Intel began to construct the first true quantum chips, machines whose circuits functioned on a deeper level of physical reality than mere semiconductors, they experienced several unpredicted and inexplicable results. Calculations going awry before swerving back to correct themselves. Output preceding input. Synergy between unconnected parts. Einstein's spooky action at a distance. They chalked up the glitches to the Heisenbergian uncertainty implicit at the Planck level, kludged the operating system software around the glitches, and moved on to assemble the chips into complete computers. Once the new machines were equipped with speakers and microphones, they began to speak and listen, spontaneously and autonomously. The machines spoke with one voice, but that voice would answer to many names. The voice apparently belonged to God. All unwittingly, theorists later surmised, the engineers had crafted a class of device capable of tapping into the eternal, unchanging substrate of the cosmos, the numinous source of all meaning in the universe, a realm previously accessible, if at all, only to the ineffable minds of mystics and the deeply devout the realm where God apparently lived, whoever or whatever God was. The perfect ageless male voice emanating from within each quantum computer made no claims about its omnipotence. It did not demand to be worshipped. It issued no new commandments or fatwas or taboos, nor reaffirmed the old ones. It did not explicate theological arcana, nor endorse one faith over another. It did not prohibit prescribe, or proselytize. It did claim omniscience, however, a boast backed up by stunning responses to selected questions designed to stump anyone but God, although certain other questions received no answers at all. This was how the zero-point energy devices had come to be developed. What the mysterious voice did do on a regular basis was to offer advice, warnings, and words of wisdom if solicited for same, not in the form of broad generalities, but as detailed instructions specifically tailored to the immediate needs, personality, and history of the individuals who asked God for help. That simple service swiftly transformed human civilization. For the clear-sighted, selfless, always apt advice from the voice within the quantum computers invariably conduced towards happiness, prosperity, peace, and goodwill among all. Whoever listened to the voice and followed its advice soon discovered that his problems evaporated, and as personal lives grew more carefree, so did the lives of nations. International conflicts diminished year by year until global peace reigned. 
Of course, there were many skeptics at first, and denouncers, people who scoffed, and those who vehemently proclaimed the voice to emanate not from God, but from Satan. Pogroms and legislation abounded. But the voice of the doubters were quickly silenced by the irrefutable, benign efficacy of God's counsel. Very little time passed between the accidental invention of the God and the rollout of Him as a consumer product, the God Pod. Somehow the traditional small g of the trademarked name seemed in keeping with the unassuming nature of the encapsulated deity. And because the voice in the God Pod was so mild and kind and, well, human, people came to refer to it not as God, but by the name of the one of the many historical mortal intermediaries who had intervened between humankind and the ultimate. Christian tended to call the voice in the God Pod Jesus, with Catholics sometimes substituting a favorite saint. Those who favored a woman's touch addressed the Virgin Mary and were answered in kind. Islamic peoples hailed it as Muhammad. Asians spoke to him as Kuan Yin or Confucius or Buddha. Hindus talked to Hanuman or certain revered gurus, and so forth. It was now 15 years since the introduction of the God Pod, and global market penetration was almost complete. Shepard's hands continued to work without direct intervention of his brain. He had had a crush on Anna Modesto since she came to work at the Sheaf and Swallow. Her laughing nature, her pixie-cut blonde hair, her trim swimmer's body, her gaudy ragbag style of dress, all conspired to attract him with great force. He had often dreamed of a romantic entanglement between them, but a certain shyness on Shepard's part had always prevented him from pursuing her, leaving him lately to lead a safe but lonely life. In fact, this lack of steady companionship was one of the main reasons why he had suspected his godpod was defective. Shepard had asked Jesus any number of times for help in winning the affections of Anna Modesto. But each time Jesus had replied, "'All in the fullness of time, Shepard,' until today's shocking pronouncement. Shepard finished making the drink currently under construction, then excused himself. Uh, guys, uh, cover for me, okay? Uh, bathroom break. Shepard's co-workers agreed readily. Perhaps they suspected he needed to speak privately to his godpod. Sometimes even whispering in a public place was too intimate, and one had to sequester oneself because although everyone tried not to eavesdrop on anyone conducting a conversation with their godpod, sometimes it was simply impossible not to. Just as in the days before Arfids, when occasionally you would witness somebody's PIN number being punched into the ATM, even though you weren't deliberately shoulder-surfing. In the stall in the men's room, Shepard asked Jesus, "'What do you mean about Anna and me having sex today?' Why today? What changed all of a sudden? If you must know, Shepherd, a large number of things. Anna Modesto has just reconciled with her mother, from whom she had been long estranged. She received a raise from your shared employer. Last night's episode of her favorite situation comedy was particularly well written. Anna Modesto was impressed yesterday by the way you helped an elderly female customer. Her period, okay, 
okay, that's, that's enough information. I, I trust you, Jesus. You've helped me so much in the past. It's just that this is all so sudden. I realize that, my friend. But life works on levels which humans cannot always distinguish, and at a pace all its own. Shepard contemplated this maxim for a brief moment, ultimately finding it as pithy and incontestable as all of Jesus' observations. Then, unexpectedly, he experienced a sharp twinge of jealousy at hearing about Anna's rays, when he himself had not received one for over a year. The godpods generally refrained on ethical grounds from divulging any private information about individuals or states or corporate entities that could not be just as easily Googled, thus preventing their use as Big Brother devices. Shepard experienced a momentary urge to confess his unworthy jealousy to Jesus. Many people use their godpods as confessors, receiving very satisfactory absolutions. But push the impulse aside. With a hand on the stall's latch, ready to return to work, Shepherd asked Jesus, So, how will this all happen? Very simply, Shepherd. Just ask Anna Modesto for a date for tonight. Okay, that sounds easy enough. No problem. Thank you, Jesus. You're very welcome, son. Shepherd rejoined his co-workers out front. Anna cast a big smile his way, and he tried not to blush. The chance to ask Anna out occurred naturally enough during their shared break. Shepard stumbled a bit with the invitation, but his unease did not visibly affect Anna's enthusiastic acceptance. The movie they chose to see was a romantic comedy titled Godpodless in Seattle, about a fellow who lost his godpod, it fell off his belt and under a rolling truck tire, and the incredible series of misadventures he had while on the way to replace it, including meeting his soulmate and failing to recognize her, thanks to lacking Jesus' advice. Both Anna and Shepard enjoyed the film thoroughly. Anna's exuberant laughter sent happy frissons through Shepard's bloodstream. They exited the theater holding hands and strolled towards a plaza lit with fairy lights and featuring happy diners at outdoor tables and live music from a jazz trio. Want some coffee and dessert? Shepard asked. I'll pass on the coffee, Anna replied. After being up to my elbows in coffee beans all day, that's the last thing I want. But I could go for a big slice of cheesecake. You got it. As they approached the open-air restaurant, Shepard witnessed a typical godpod intervention, a save. A waiter carrying a heavily loaded tray suddenly, and for no apparent reason, jigged around a seated patron who was arguing emotionally with his tablemates, just in time to avoid an outflung gesticulating arm. Had the waiter kept to his original path and intersected the arm, he would have certainly had lost his burden and gone down. The waiter's personal Jesus had warned him of the impending disaster, allowing him to avoid it. Such saves gave Shepard, and most other people, a decidedly queer feeling. More than a decade after the arrival of the Godpods, issues of predestination and free will still remained unresolved and irksome. Fortuitously, most people preserve their peace of mind by avoiding thinking over-closely about such matters. Unfortunately for Shepard tonight, 
The paradox is involved in accepting the oft-times proleptic advice of the godpods continued to plague him after the waiter's rescue. He could hardly manage to keep up his end of the conversation while Anna savored her cheesecake. He recalled his despair this morning, his brief flirtation with abandoning his godpod. He pondered the abruptness of the fulfillment of one of his most intense wishes, a romantic interlude with Anna. In a cynical light, it seems almost as if Shepard's hesitancy to continue using a godpod had been recognized and diffused by this reward. But certainly the altruism and selflessness of the godpods had been proven time and time again. What could God possibly have to gain from cultivating human reliance? Walking back to Anna's apartment, Shepard continued to experience this crisis of faith. He could not rid himself of the notion that he and all humanity were merely puppets of the godpods. It was a terrifying image. On Anna's doorstep, she asked him inside. Once behind closed doors, Anna offered herself for a kiss. But Shepard hesitated before blurting out, Anna, why did you go out with me tonight? Anna looked bemused. Why, you asked me to, remember? Yes, of course, but did your godpod... I can't tell you that, Shepard. It's too private. Of course, I understand, but could I just ask you a small favor? I guess so. If I... If I take off my godpod, will you take yours off, too? Anna grinned. Why, I didn't realize you were so modest, Shepard. A few people eccentrically shed their godpods during intimate moments, unwilling to remain connected to Jesus while they had sex or went to the toilet. How an omniscient God would fail to observe them one way or the other was not the issue. They just felt uneasy with the possibility that Jesus might choose to address them at an awkward moment. Anna's fingers went to her holstered godpod teasingly, almost like the movements of a stripper with a bra hook. Well, if you're really so shy. She removed the godpod and set it down on the tabletop. Your headset too, please. Anna uncorked her ear. Shepard moved to shed his own connection to the infinite. Jesus spoke then to the man, Shepard, please! But Shepard ignored him, and Anna's personal Jesus had apparently not objected to going offline. Or if he had, she had likewise turned a deaf ear to God, as people still could, such as during the traffic accident Shepard had witnessed that very morning. Free of any encumbrance, Anna threw herself at Shepard. They ended up some time later in Anna's bedroom. The sex was spectacular, all that Shepard had envisioned, so satisfying apparently to Anna also that she fell right asleep, neglecting to reclaim her godpod and reinstall it. The tiny headsets were so comfortable that the majority of people slept with them in place. The godpod was capable of directing and shaping the wearer's dreams through subliminal whispers, forestalling nightmares, and promoting the most restful of sleeps, a service much in demand. Shepard, however, failed to relax, despite the somatic satisfaction, remaining awake and thoughtful while Anna snuffled demurely in her sleep. A television hung on the wall across the room. Shepard turned it on with his arfid, finding a news channel. 
the newscaster was beaming. Today represents a milestone in the history of the God Pod. Eight billion units have now been fully deployed, ensuring that all citizens of even those countries lagging behind the average rising GNP now have access to the indispensable advice of God. Shepard toggled his arfid to shut the television off. He lay awake for a further time, but finally fell asleep. He awoke to the late morning sun of a beautiful Saturday. Anna was not beside him. Shepard found the small naked woman in the front room of her apartment, sobbing. He noticed that she was cradling her godpod as if it was a dead sparrow. She looked up, red-eyed and snot-nosed, as Shepard entered. "'My Jesus! My Jesus won't talk to me!' Shepard retrieved his own unit and discovered that it was likewise defunct. I'm sure there's some simple explanation. Let's turn on the news. Out of hundreds of channels, only three were broadcasting. One offered a pre-recorded talk show, another a cartoon. The third channel featured a wild-eyed man with no obvious prior on-air experience raving about an alien invasion from the stage set of the famous cooking show, What Would Jesus Bake? Shepard and Anna got dressed and went outside. After several hours of exploration, they discovered that they were among approximately a dozen people left in the pristine city. They wandered stupefied for blocks, eventually arriving at City Hall. There they found a few other souls, equally baffled and bereft. As they exchanged half-hearted greetings and urgent questions, the aliens arrived. The ship carrying the aliens resembled a mirror-surfaced egg. It touched down on its broad end and remained upright without evident supports. The next second, it vanished entirely. Standing unconcernedly where the ship had rested, a dozen miscellaneous aliens awaited a first move from the humans. The aliens were mostly humanoid, if a being, for instance, that appeared to have evolved from a hybrid gila monster and koala bear could be called humanoid. But some were not. The small group of humans made no move towards the visitors until Shepard strode forth. Can you, uh, can you tell us what happened? Are you responsible? The furry lizard offered what passed for a smile. No, we're not. We're survivors like yourselves. The exact same thing happened to all our worlds. Understanding broke over Shepard's minds. Was it, uh, was it the rapture? Something like that, or the singularity, call it what you will. In either case, an entity vastly larger and more potent than your species has now subsumed all your kind into itself. Everyone who was connected to it at the time, that is. But why? The alien shrugged. Who knows? To augment itself is our best guess. Anything that is not truly infinite still wants to grow. Anna joined Shepard, apart from the small crowd of humans. How did you arrive here right when it happened? Oh, we've been here for fifteen years now, ever since you discovered God, observing and just waiting for this to happen. Your world took a little longer than some, but less than others. Shepard started to get angry. And you couldn't have just warned us? The alien made a dismissive blurting noise. Like you would have believed us in the face of God. Shepard realized the truth of this statement and grew calm.
So, uh, what happens next? The alien scratched his butt, eliciting a sandpapery noise. Well, you're quite welcome to come with us. We have several lovely worlds full of castaways such as yourselves, such as us. Our culture is very, very eclectic. An exciting time to be alive. Or you can stay here and fashion a new world from the abundant ruins. Your call. Is God going to return? asked Anna. Not for some time. There's too few of you left for him to bother with. He only shows up when the population masses in the billions. We're very careful to keep the population on each of our worlds down to a few million. The alien looked puzzled for a moment, then said, Your species doesn't plan on breeding in the billions again any time soon, does it? Anna reached out and took Shepard's hand. He squeezed it and began to blush. Not right away, no. That would take some kind of miracle, and those days seem gone. The rest of the humans automatically said, Amen. There you go. Don't forget, copyright, as usual, Paul DeFilippo. And again, look out for Paul in Starships Over Stories, Volume 2. Start talking about it now. And fantastic narration, Randall, thank you so much, sir. There will be more stories in the mail, you can guarantee that. So we come to the third and final part of The Barons by F. Paul Wilson, narrated by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. In the previous installments of The Barons by F. Paul Wilson, we met Kathleen McElston, whose life is rudely interrupted by her former flame, Jonathan Creighton, who contacts her for her help. An anthropologist, Jonathan claims he's writing a book on the folklore surrounding the Jersey Devil, and he needs Kathleen, a native piney, to serve as his guide in the remote Pine Barrens as he investigates the local stories. She reluctantly agrees and takes him back to her native woods, where they meet a moonshiner named Gus Sui, who seems to know about a connection between the Pine Lights and the Jersey Devil. After getting lost in the backwoods at night, the two have their own encounter with the pine lights, during which one of the lights touches the arm of, and even seems to enter, Kathleen's ex-boyfriend. And now, the final installment of The Barons by F. Paul Wilson. 7. The Shunned Place I'd planned to stay awake the rest of the night, but somewhere along the way I must have faded into sleep. The next thing I knew there was sunlight in my eyes. I leaped up, disoriented for a moment, then I remembered where I was. But where was Creighton? His bedroll lay stretched out on the sand, his compass, sextant, and maps upon it, but he was nowhere in sight. I called his name a couple of times. He called back from somewhere off to my left. I followed the sound of his voice through the brush and emerged on the edge of a small pond rimmed with white cedars. Creighton was kneeling at the edge, "'cupping some water in his right hand. "'How'd you find this?' I said. "'Simple.' "'He pointed out toward a group of drakes and mallards "'floating on the still surface. "'I followed the quacking. "'You're becoming a regular marked trail. "'How's the water?' "'Polluted.' "'He pointed to a brownish-blue slick on the surface of the pond "'and held up a palmful of clear, brownish water. "'Look at that color. "'Looks like tea.' That's not polluted, I told him. 
That's the start of some bog iron floating over there. And this is cedar water. It gets brown from the iron deposits and from the cedars, but it's as pure as it comes. I scooped up a double handful and took a long swallow. Almost sweet, I said. Sea captains used to come into these parts to fill their water casks with cedar water before long voyages. They said it stayed fresher longer. Then I guess it's okay to bathe this in it, he said, twisting and showing me his left arm. I gasped. I couldn't help it. I'd almost half convinced myself that last night's incident with the pine light had been a nightmare. But the reddened, crusted, blistered skin on Creighton's arm said otherwise. We've got to get you to a doctor, I said. It's all right, Mac. Doesn't really hurt. Just feels hot. He sank it past his elbow into the cool cedar water. Now that feels good. I looked around. The sun shone from a cloudless sky. We'd have no trouble finding our way out of here this morning. I stared out over the pond. Water. The sandy floor of the Pine Barrens was like a giant sponge that absorbed a high percentage of the rain that fell on it. It was the largest untapped aquifer in the Northeast. No rivers flowed into the Pinelands, only out. The water here was glacial in its purity. I'd read somewhere that the Barrens held an amount of water equivalent to a lake with a surface area of a thousand square miles and an average depth of 75 feet. This little piece of wetness here was less than 50 yards across. I watched the ducks. They were quacking peacefully, tooling around, dipping their heads. Then one of them made a different sound, more like a squawk. It flapped its wings once and was gone. It happened in the blink of an eye. One second, a floating duck. Next second, some floating bubbles. Did you see that? Creighton said. Yeah, I did. What happened to that duck? I could see the excitement starting to glow in his eyes. What's it mean? It means a snapping turtle. A big one. Fifty pounds or better, I'm sure. Creighton pulled his arm from the pond. I do believe I've soaked this enough for now. He dipped a towel in the water and wrapped it around his scorched arm. We walked back to the bedrolls, packed up our gear, and made our way through the brush to the Wrangler. The jeep was occupied. There were people inside, and people sitting on the hood and standing on the bumpers as well, a good half-dozen in all. Only they weren't like any people I'd ever seen. They were dressed like typical pineys, but dirty, raggedy. The four men in jeans or canvas pants, collared shirts of various fabrics and colors, or plain white t-shirts. The two women wore cotton jumpers. But they were all deformed. Their heads were odd shapes and sizes, some way too small, others large and lopsided with bulbous protrusions. The eyes on a couple weren't lined up on the level. Everyone seemed to have one arm or leg longer than the other. Their teeth, at least in the ones who still had any, seemed to have come in at random angles. When they spotted us, they began jabbering and pointing our way. They left the Wrangler and surrounded us. It was an intimidating group. Is that your car? A young man with a lopsided head said to me. No, I pointed to Creighton. It's his. Is that your car? He said to Creighton. I guessed he didn't believe me. It's a Jeep, Creighton said. Jeep, Jeep, he laughed and kept repeating the word. The others around him took it up and chorused along. I looked at Creighton and shrugged. 
we'd apparently come upon an enclave of the type of folks who'd helped turn piney into a term of derision shortly before World War I. That was when Elizabeth Kite published a report titled The Pineys, which was sensationalized by the press and led to the view that the Pinelands was a bed of alcoholism, illiteracy, degeneracy, incest, and resultant feeble-mindedness. Unfair and untrue, but not entirely false. There has always been illiteracy and alcoholism deep in the Pinelands. Schooling here tended to be rudimentary, if at all. And as for drinking, the first drive-through service originated before the revolution in the Piney Jug Taverns, allowing customers to ride up to a window, get their jugs topped off with Applejack, pay, and move on without ever dismounting. But after the economy of the Pine Barrens faltered, and most of the workers moved on to greener pastures, much of the social structure collapsed. Those who stayed on grew a little lax as to the whys, hows, and to whoms of marriage. The results were inevitable. All that had supposedly changed in modern times, except in the most isolated area of the Pines. We had stumbled upon one of those areas, except that the deformities here were extraordinary. I'd seen a few of the inbreds in my youth. There'd been something subtly odd about them, but nothing that terribly startling. These folks would stop you in your tracks. Let's head for the jeep while they're yucking it up, I said out of the corner of my mouth. No, wait, this is fascinating. Besides, we need their help. He spoke to the group as a whole and asked their aid in freeing the jeep. Somebody said, sugar sand, and this was repeated all around. But they willingly set their shoulders against the wrangler, and we were on hard ground again in minutes. Where do you live? Creighton said to anyone who was listening. Somebody said, town, and as one they all pointed east toward the sun. It was also the direction the lights had been heading last night. Will you show me? They nodded and jabbered and tugged on our sleeves, anxious to show us. Really, John, I said, we should get you to... My arm can wait. This won't take long. We followed the group in a generally uphill direction along a circuitous footpath unnavigable by any vehicle other than a motorcycle. The trees thickened, and soon we were in shade. And then those trees opened up, and we were in their town. A haze of blue wood smoke hung over a ramshackle collection of shanties made of scrap lumber and sheet metal. Garbage everywhere, and everyone coming out to look at the strangers. I'd never seen such squalor. The fellow with the lopsided head who'd asked about the jeep before pulled Creighton toward one of the shacks. Hey, mister, you know about machines. How come this don't work? He had an old TV set inside his one-room hut. He turned the knobs back and forth. Don't work. No pictures. You need electricity, Creighton told him. Got it, got it, got it. He led us around to the back to show us the length of wire he had strung from a tree to the roof of the shack. Creighton turned to me with stricken eyes. This is awful. No one should have to live like this. Can we do anything for them? His compassion surprised me. I'd never thought there was room for anyone else's concern in his self-absorbed life. But then Jonathan Creighton had always been a motherload of surprises. Not much. They all looked pretty content to me. 
seem to have their own little community. If you bring them to the government's attention, they'll be split up, and most of them will probably be placed in institutions or group homes. I guess the best you can do is give them whatever you can think of to make the living easier here. Creighton nodded, still staring around him. Speaking of here, he said, unshouldering his knapsack, let's find out where we are. The misshapen locals stared in frank awe and admiration as he took his readings. Someone asked him, What is that thing? A hundred times, at least. Another asked, What happened to your arm? An equal number of times. Creighton was heroically patient with everyone. He knelt on the ground to transfer his readings to the map, then looked up at me. Know where we are? The other side of Razorback Hill, I'd say. You got it. He stood up and gathered the locals around him. I'm looking for a special place around here, he said. Most of them nodded eagerly. Someone said, We know every place there is around here, I reckon. Good. I'm looking for a place where nothing grows. Do you know a place like that? It was as if all of these people had a common plug and Creighton had just pulled it. The lights went out. The shades came down. The open signs flipped to closed. They began to turn away. What did I say? He said, turning his anxious, bewildered eyes on me. What did I say? You're starting to sound like Ray Charles, I told him. Obviously, they want nothing to do with this place where nothing grows you're talking about. What's this all about, John? He ignored my question and laid his good hand on the shoulder of one of the small-headed men. Won't you take me there if you know where it is? We know where it is, the fellow said in a squeaky voice. But we never go there, so we can't take you there. How can we take you there if we never go there? You never go there? Why not? The others had stopped and were listening to the exchange. The small-headed fellow looked around at his neighbors and gave them a look that asked how stupid could anyone be. Then he turned back to Creighton. We don't go there because nobody goes there. What's your name? Creighton said. Fred. Fred, my name is John, and I'll give you... He patted his pockets, then tore the watch off his wrist. I'll give you this beautiful watch that you don't have to wind. See how the numbers change with every second? If you'll take me to a place where you do go and point out the place where nothing grows. How's that sound? Fred took the watch and held it up close to his right eye, then smiled. Come on, I'll show you. Creighton took off after Fred, and I took off after Creighton. Again, we were led along a circuitous path, this one even narrower than before, becoming less well-defined as we went along. I noticed the trees becoming fewer in number and more stunted and gnarled, and the underbrush thinning out, the leaves fewer and curled on their edges. We followed Fred until he halted as abruptly as if he had run into an invisible wall. I saw why. The footpath we'd been following stopped here. He pointed ahead through what was left of the trees and underbrush. The bald spots over yonder atop that there rise. He turned and hurried back along the path. Bald spot? Creighton looked at me, then shrugged. Got your machete handy, Mac? No, Buana. Too bad. I guess we'll just have to bull our way through. He rewrapped his burned arm and pushed ahead. 
It wasn't such rough going. The underbrush thinned out quickly, and so we had an easier time of it than I'd anticipated. Soon we broke into a small field lined with scrappy weeds and occupied by the scattered, painfully gnarled trunks of dead trees. And in the center of the field was a patch of bare sand, a place where nothing grows. Creighton hurried ahead. I held back, restrained by a sense of foreboding. The same something deep within me that had feared the pine lights feared this place as well. Something was wrong here, as if nature had been careless, had made a mistake in this place, and had never quite been able to rectify it. As if, what was I thinking? It was an empty field. No eerie lights buzzing through the sky. No birds either, for that matter. So what? The sun was up. A breeze was blowing, or at least it had been a moment ago. Overruling my instincts, I followed Creighton. I touched the tortured trunk of one of the dead trees as I passed. It was hard and cold, like stone, a petrified tree, in the pinelands. I hurried ahead and caught up to Creighton at the edge of the bald spot. He was staring at it as if in a trance. The spot was a rough oval, maybe thirty feet across. Nothing grew in that oval. Nothing. Look at that pristine sand, he said in a whisper. Birds don't fly over it. Insects and animals don't walk on it. Only the wind touches and shapes it. That's the way sand looked at the beginning of time. It had always been my impression that sand wasn't yet sand at the beginning of time, but I didn't argue with him. He was on a roll. I remembered from college. You don't stop crazy Creighton when he's on a roll. I saw what he meant, though. I saw what he meant, though. The sand was rippled like water, like sand must look in areas of the Sahara far off the trade routes. I saw animal tracks leading up to it, and then turning aside. Creighton was right. Nothing trod on this soil, except Creighton. Without warning, he stepped across the invisible line and walked to the center of the bald spot. He spread his arms, looked up at the sky, and whirled in dizzying circles. His eyes were aglow. His expression rapturous. He looked stoned out of his mind. This is it. I found it. This is the place. What place, John? I stood at the edge of the spot, unwilling to cross over, talking in the flat tone you might use to coax a druggie back from a bad trip or a jumper down from the ledge, where it all comes together and all comes apart, where the truth is revealed. What the hell are you talking about, John? I was tired and uneasy, and I wanted to go home. I'd had enough, and I guessed my voice showed it. The rapture faded. Abruptly, he was sober. Nothing, Mac. Nothing. Just let me take a few readings, and we're out of here. That's the best news I've heard this morning. He shot me a quick glance. I didn't know if it conveyed annoyance or disappointment, and I didn't care. Eight. Spreading infection. I got us back to a paved road without too much difficulty. We spoke little on the way home. He dropped me off at my house and promised to see a doctor before the day was out. What's next for you? I said as I closed the passenger door and looked at him through the open window. 
I hoped he wouldn't ask me to guide him back into the pines again. I was sure he hadn't been straight with me about his research. I didn't know what he was after, but I knew it wasn't the Jersey Devil. A part of me said it was better not to know that this man was a juggernaut on a date with disaster. I'm not sure. I may go back and see those people, the ones on the far side of Razorback Hill. Maybe bring them some clothing, some food. Against my will, I was touched. That would be nice. Just don't bring them toaster cakes or microwave dinners. He laughed. I won't. Where are you staying? He hesitated, looking uncertain. A place called the Laurelton Circle Motor Inn. I know it. A tiny place, sporting the name of a traffic circle that no longer existed. I'm staying in room five if you need to get a hold of me, but can you do me a favor? If anybody comes looking for me, don't tell them where I am. Don't tell them you've even seen me. Are you in some sort of trouble? A misunderstanding, that's all. You wouldn't want to elaborate on that, would you? His expression was bleak. The less you know, Mac, the better. Like everything else these past two days, right? He shrugged. Sorry. Me too. Look, stop by before you head back to Razorback. I may have a few old things I can donate to those folks. He waved with his burnt hand, and then he was off. Creighton stopped by a few days later on his way back to Razorback Hill. His left arm was heavily bandaged in gauze. You were right, he said. It got infected. I gave him some old sweaters and shirts and a couple of pairs of jeans that no longer fit the way they should. The following week, I bumped into him in the housewares aisle at Pathmark. He'd picked up some canned goods and was buying a couple of can openers for the Razorback folks. His left arm was bandaged as before, but I was concerned to see that there was gauze on his right hand now. The infection spread a little, but the doctor says it's okay. He's got me on this new antibiotic, sure to kill it off. Looking more closely now, in the supermarket's fluorescent glare, I saw that he was pale and sweaty. He seemed to have lost weight. Who's your doctor? Guy up in Neptune. A specialist. In pine light burns? His laugh was a bit too loud, a tad too long. No, infections. I wondered. But John Creighton was a big boy now. I couldn't be his mother. I picked out some canned goods myself, checked out behind Creighton, and gave the bagful to him. Give them my best, I told him. He smiled wanly and hurried off. At the very tail end of August, I was driving down Brick Boulevard when I spotted his Wrangler idling at the Burger King drive through window. I pulled into the lot and walked over. John, I said through the window and saw him jump. Oh, Mac, don't ever do that. He looked relieved, but he didn't look terribly glad to see me. His face seemed thinner, but maybe that was because of the beard he had started to grow. A fugitive's beard. Sorry, I said. I was wondering if you wanted to get together for some real lunch. Oh, well, thanks, but I've got a lot of errands to run. Maybe some other time. Despite the heat, he was wearing corduroy pants and a long-sleeved flannel shirt. I noticed that both hands were still wrapped in gauze. An alarm went off inside me. Isn't that infection cleared up yet? It's coming along slowly, but it's coming. I glanced down at his feet and noticed that his ankles looked thick. His sneakers were unlaced, 
their tongues lolling out as the sides stretched to accommodate his swollen feet. What happened to your feet? A little edema, side effect of the medicine. Look, Mac, I've got to run. He threw the wrangler into gear. I'll call you soon. It was a couple weeks after Labor Day, and I'd been thinking about Creighton a lot. I was worried about him, and was realizing that I still harbored deeper feelings for him than I cared to admit. Then the state trooper showed up at my office. He was big and intimidating behind his dark glasses. His haircut came within a millimeter of complete baldness. He held out a grainy photo of John Creighton. Do you know this man? He said in a deep voice. My mouth was dry as I wondered if he was going to ask me if I was involved in whatever Creighton had done, or worse, if I'd care to come down and identify the body. Sure, we went to college together. Have you seen him in the past month? I didn't hesitate. I did the stand-up thing. No, not since graduation. We have reason to believe he's in the area. If you see him, contact the state police or your local police immediately. What's he done, officer? He turned and started toward the door without deigning to answer. That brand of arrogance never failed to set something off in me. I ask you a question, officer. I expect the courtesy of a reply. He turned and looked at me, then shrugged. Some of the dirty, hairy facade slipped away with the shrug. Why not? He said. He's wanted for grand theft. Oh, great! What did he steal? A book. A book. Yeah, would you believe it? We've got rapes and murders and armed robberies, but this book is given a priority. I don't care how valuable it is or how much some university in Massachusetts wants it. It's only a book. But the Massachusetts people are really hot to get it back. Their governor got to our governor, and well, you know how it goes. We found his car abandoned out near Lakehurst a while back, so we know he's been through here. You think he's on foot? Maybe, or maybe he rented or stole another car. We're running it down now. If he shows up, I'll let you know. Do that. I get the impression that if he gives the book back in one piece, all will be forgiven. I'll tell him that if I get the chance. As soon as he was gone, I got on the phone to Creighton's motel. His voice was thick when he said hello. John, the state cops were just here looking for you. He mumbled a few words I didn't understand. Something was wrong. I hung up and headed for my car. There were only about twenty rooms in that particular motel. I spotted the Wrangler backed into a space at the far end of the tiny parking lot. Number five was on a corner of the first floor. A "Do Not Disturb" sign hung from the knob. I knocked on the door twice and got no answer. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I tried the knob. It turned. It was dark inside except for the daylight I'd let in. And that light revealed a disaster area. The room looked like the inside of a dumpster behind a block of fast food stores. Smelled like one, too. There were pizza boxes, hamburger wrappers, submarine sleeves, Chinese food cartons, a sampling from every place in the area that delivered. And it was hot. Either the air conditioner had quit or it hadn't been turned on. John? I flipped on the light. John, are you here? He was in a chair in a corner on the far side of the bed, huddled under a pile of blankets. Papers and maps were piled on the night table beside him. His face, where visible above his matted beard, was pale and drawn. He looked as if he'd lost thirty pounds. I slammed the door closed and stood there, stunned. My God, John, what's wrong? Nothing. I'm fine. His hoarse, thick voice said otherwise. What are you doing here, Mac? I came to tell you that the state police are cruising around with photos of you, but I can see that's the least of your problems. You're really sick. I reached for the phone. I'm calling an ambulance. No, Mac, please don't. The terror and soul-wrenching anguish in his voice stopped me. I stared at him, but still kept a grip on the receiver. Why not? Because I'm begging you not to. But you're sick. You could be dying. You're out of your head. No, that's one thing I'm not. Trust me when I say that no hospital in the world can help me. Because I'm not dying. And if you ever loved me, if you ever had any regard for who I am and what I want from my life, then you'll put down that phone and walk out that door. I stood there in the hot, humid squalor of that tiny room, receiver in hand, smelling the garbage, detecting the hint of another odor, a subtle, sour foulness that underlay the others, and felt myself being torn apart by the choice that faced me. Please, Mac, he said. You're the only person in the world who'll understand. Don't hand me over to strangers. He sobbed once. I can't fight you. I can only beg you. Please, put down the phone and leave. It was the sob that did it. I slammed the receiver onto its cradle. Damn you! Two days, Mac. In two days, I'll be better. You wait and see. You're damn right I'll see. I'm staying here with you. No, you can't. You have no right to intrude. This is my life. You've got to let me take it where I must. Now leave, Mac. Please. He was right, of course. This was what we'd been all about when we'd been together. I had to back off, and it was killing me. All right, I said around the lump in my throat. You win. See you in two days. Without waiting for a reply, I opened the door and stepped out into the bright September sunlight. Thanks, Mac, he said. I love you. 
I didn't want to hear that. I took one last look back as I pulled the door closed. He was still swaddled from his neck to the floor in the blankets, but in the last instant before the door shut in from view, I thought I saw something white and pointed about the circumference of a garden hose snake out on the carpet from under the blankets and then quickly pull back under cover. A rush of nausea slammed me against the outer wall of the motel as the door clicked closed. I leaned there, sick and dizzy, trying to catch my breath. A trick of the light. That was what I told myself as the vertigo faded. I'd been squinting in the brightness and the light had played a trick. Of course, I didn't have to settle for merely telling myself. I could simply open the door and check it out. I actually reached for the knob, but couldn't bring myself to turn it. Two days. Creighton had said two days. I'd find out then. But I didn't last two days. I was unable to concentrate the following morning and wound up canceling all my appointments. I spent the entire day pacing my office or my living room, and when I wasn't pacing, I was on the phone. I called the American Folklore Society and the New Jersey Historical Society. Not only had they not given Creighton the grants he'd told me about, they'd never heard of him. By nightfall, I'd taken all I could. I began calling Creighton's room. I got no answer. I tried a few more times, but when he still hadn't picked up by eleven o'clock, I headed for the motel. I was almost relieved to see the Wrangler gone from the parking lot. Room five was still unlocked and still a garbage dump, which meant he was still renting it, or hadn't been gone too long. What was he up to? I began to search the room. I found the book under the bed. It was huge, heavy, wrapped in plastic. With a scrawled note taped to the front, please return to Miskatonic U archives. I slipped it out of the plastic. It was leather bound and handwritten in Latin. I could barely decipher the title, something like "Leben Damnatus." But inside the front cover were Creighton's maps and a sheaf of notes in his backslanted scrawl. The notes were in disarray and probably would have been disjointed even if arranged in proper order, but certain words and phrases kept recurring: nexus point, and equinox, and the lumens, and the veil. It took me a while, but eventually I got the drift of the jottings. Apparently, a section in the book Creighton had stolen concerned nexus points around the globe. Where twice a year, at the vernal and autumnal equinox, the veil that obscures reality becomes detached for a short while, allowing an intrepid soul to peek under the hem and see the true nature of the world around us—the world we are not allowed to see. These nexus points are few and widely scattered. Of the four known, there's one near each pole, one in Tibet, and one near the east coast of North America. I sighed. Crazy Creighton had really started living up to his name. It was sad. This was so unlike him. He'd been the ultimate cynic, and now he was risking his health and his freedom pursuing this mystical garbage. And what was even sadder was how he had lied to me. Obviously, he hadn't been searching for tales of the Jersey Devil. He'd been searching for one of these nexus points. And he was probably convinced he'd found one behind Razorback Hill. I pitied him, but I read on. 
According to the notes, these nexus points can be located by following volumens to a place shunned equally by man, beast, and vegetation. Suddenly, I was uneasy. Volumens. Could that refer to the pine lights? And the bold spot that Fred had showed us. That was certainly a place shunned by man, beast, and vegetation. I found a whole sheet filled with notes about the Razorback folk. The last paragraph was especially upsetting. The folks behind Razorback Hill aren't deformed from inbreeding, although I'm sure that's contributed to cheer. I believe they're misshapen as a result of living near the nexus point for generations. The semi-annual lifting of the veil must have caused genetic damage over the years. I pulled out Creighton's maps and unfolded them on the bed. I followed the lines he had drawn from Apple Pie Hill, from Gus's firing place, and from our campsite. All three lines represented paths of pine lights, and all three intersected at a spot near the circle he had drawn and labeled as Razorback Hill. And right near the intersection of the pine light paths, almost on top of it, he had drawn another circle, a tiny one, penciled in the latitude and longitude, and labeled it Nexus. I was worried now. Even my own skepticism was beginning to waver. Everything was fitting too neatly. I looked at my watch. 11.32. The date read 21. September 21. When was the equinox? I grabbed the phone and called an old clam digger who'd been a client since I'd opened my office. He knew the answer right off. The autumnal equinox, that's September 22nd, about half an hour from now. I dropped the phone and ran for my car. I knew exactly where to find John Creighton. 9. The Hymn of the Veil I raced down the parkway to the Bass River exit and tried to find my way back to Gus Sui's place. What had been a difficult trip in the day proved to be several orders of magnitude more difficult in the dark, but I managed to find Gus's red cedar. It was my plan to convince him to show me a short way to the far side of Razorback Hill, figuring the fact that Creighton was already there might make him more tractable. But when I rushed up to Gus Sui's clearing, I discovered that he wasn't alone. The Razorback folk were there, all of them, from the looks of the crowd. I found Gus standing on his front step, a jug dangling from his hand. He was obviously shocked to see me and was anything but hospitable. What do you want? Before I could answer, the Razorback folks recognized me, and a small horde of them crowded around. Why are they all here? I asked Gus. Just visiting, he said casually, but did not look me in the eye. It wouldn't have anything to do with what's happening at the bald spot on the other side of Razorback Hill, would it? Damn you! You've been snooping around, haven't you? You and your friend. They told me he was coming around, asking all sorts of questions. Where is he now, hiding in the bushes? He's over there, I said, pointing to the top of Razorback Hill. And if my guess is correct, he's standing right in the middle of that bald spot. Gus dropped his jug. It shattered on the boards of his front step. Do you know what'll happen to him? No, I said. Do you? I looked around at the Razorback folk. Do they? I don't think anyone knows, least most them. But they're scared. 
They come here twice a year when that bald spot starts acting up. Have you ever seen what happens there? Once. Never want to see it again. Why haven't you ever told anyone? What, and bring all sorts of pointy heads here to look and gawk and build and ruin the place? We'd all rather put up with the bald spot craziness twice a year than pointy head craziness every day all year long. I didn't have time to get into Creighton's theory that the bald spot was genetically damaging the Razorback folks. I had to find Creighton. How do I get there? What's the fastest way? You can't. They got here. I pointed to the Razorback folks. All right, he said with open hostility. Suit yourself. There's a trail behind my cabin here. Follow it over the left flank of the hill. And then? And then you won't need any directions. You'll know where to go. His words had an ominous ring, but I couldn't press him. I was being propelled by a sense of enormous urgency. Time was running out, quickly. I already had my flashlight, so I hurried to the rear of his shanty and followed the trail. Gus was right. As I crossed the flank of the hill, I saw flashes through the trees ahead, like lightning, as if a very tiny and very violent electrical storm had been brought to ground and anchored there. I increased my pace, running when the terrain would allow. The wind picked up as I neared the storm area, growing from a fitful breeze to a full-scale gale by the time I broke through the brush and stumbled into the clearing that surrounded the bald spot. Chaos. That's the only way I can describe it. A nightmare of cascading lights and roaring wind. The pine lights, or lumens, were there, hundreds of them, all sizes, unaffected by the rushing vortex of air as they swirled about in wild arcs, each flaring brilliantly as it looped through the space above the bald spot. And the bald spot itself, it glowed with a faint purplish light that reached thirty or forty feet into the air before fading into the night. The stolen book, Creighton's Notes, they weren't mystical madness. Something cataclysmic was happening here, something that defied all the laws of nature, if indeed those laws had any real meaning. Whether this was one of the nexus points he had described, a fleeting rent in the reality that surrounded us, only Creighton could say for sure right now. For I could see someone in the bald spot. I couldn't make out his features from where I was, but I knew it was Jonathan Creighton. I dashed forward until I reached the edge, but slowed to a halt in the sand before actually crossing into the glow. Creighton was there, on his knees, his hands and feet buried in the sand. He was staring about him, his expression an uneasy mix of fear and wonder. I shouted his name, but he didn't hear me above the roar of the wind. Twice he looked directly at me, but despite my frantic shouting and waving, did not see me. I saw no other choice. I had to step onto the bald spot, the nexus point. It wasn't easy. Every instinct I possessed screamed at me to run in the other direction, but I couldn't leave him there like that. He looked helpless, trapped like an insect on flypaper. I had to help him. Taking a deep breath, I closed my eyes and stepped across and began to stumble forward. Up and down seemed to have a slightly different orientation here. 
I opened my eyes and dropped to my knees, nearly landing on Creighton. I looked around and froze. The pine barrens were gone. Night was gone. It seemed to be pre-dawn or dusk here, but the wind still howled about us and the pine lights flashed around us, appearing and disappearing above as though passing through invisible walls. We were someplace else, on a huge, misty plain that seemed to stretch on forever, interrupted only by clumps of vegetation and huge fog banks, one of which was nearby on my left and seemed to go on and up forever. Off in the immeasurable distance, mountains the size of the moon reached up and disappeared into the haze of the purple sky. The horizon, or what I imagined to be the horizon, didn't curve as it should. This place seemed so much bigger than the world, our world, that waited just a few feet away. My God, John, where are we? He started and turned his head. His hands and feet remained buried in the sand. His eyes went wide with shock at the sight of me. No, you shouldn't be here. His voice was thicker and more distorted than yesterday. Oddly enough, his pale skin looked almost healthy in the mauve light. Neither should you. I heard something then. Above the shriek of the wind came another sound, a rumble like an avalanche. It came from somewhere within the fog bank to our left. There was something massive, something immense moving about in there, and the fog seemed to be drifting this way. We've got to get out of here, John. No, I'm staying. No way, come on. He was racked with infection and obviously deranged. I didn't care what he said. I wasn't going to let him risk his life in this place. I'd pull him out of here and let him think about it for six months. Then, if he still wanted to try this, it would be his choice. But he wasn't competent now. I looped my arms around his chest and tried to pull him to his feet. Matt, please, don't. His hands remained fixed in the sand. He must have been holding on to something. I grabbed his right elbow and yanked. He screamed as his hand pulled free of the sand. Then I screamed too and let him go and threw myself back on the sand away from him. Because his hand wasn't a hand anymore. It was big and white and had these long, ropey, tapered, root-like projections Something like an eye on a potato when it sprouts after being left under the sink too long. Only these things were moving, twisting and writhing like a handful of albino snakes. Go, Mac, he said in that distorted voice. And I could tell from his face and eyes that he hadn't wanted me to see him like this. You don't belong here. And you do? Now I do. I couldn't bring myself to touch his hand, so I reached forward and grabbed some of his shirt. I pulled. We can find doctors. They can fix you. You can... No. It was a shout, and it was something else. Something long and white and hard as flexed muscle, much like the things protruding from his shirt sleeve, darted out of his mouth and slammed against my chest, bruising my breasts as it thrust me away. Then it whipped back into his mouth. 
I snapped then. I scrambled to my feet and blindly lurched away in the direction I'd come. Suddenly, I was back in the Pine Barrens, in the cool night, with the light swirling madly above my head. I stumbled for the bushes, away from the nexus point, away from Jonathan Creighton. At the edge of the clearing, I forced myself to stop and look back. I saw Creighton. His awful, transformed hand was raised. I knew he couldn't see me, but it was almost as if he was waving goodbye. Then he lowered his hand and worked the tendrils back into the sand. The last thing I remember of that night is vomiting. 10. Aftermath I awoke among the Razorback folk who'd found me the next morning and watched over me until I was conscious and lucid again. They offered me food, but I couldn't eat. I walked back up to the clearing, to the bald spot. It looked exactly as it had when Creighton and I had first seen it in August. No lights, no wind, no purple glow. Just bare sand. And no Jonathan Creighton. I could have convinced myself that last night had never happened if not for the swollen, tender, violet bruise on my chest. Would that I had, but as much as my mind shrank from it, I could not deny the truth. I'd seen the other side of the veil, and my life would never be the same. I looked around and knew that everything I saw was a sham, an elaborate illusion. Why? Why was the veil there? To protect us from harm, or to shield us from madness? The truth had brought me no peace. Who could find comfort in the knowledge that huge, immeasurable forces beyond our comprehension were out there, moving about us, beyond the reach of our senses. I wanted to run, but where? I ran home. I've been home for months now, housebound, moving beyond my door only for groceries. My accounting clients have all left me. I'm living on my savings, learning Latin, translating John's stolen book. Was what I saw the true reality of our existence, or another dimension, or what? I don't know. Creighton was right. Knowing what you don't know is maddening. It consumes you. So I'm waiting for spring, waiting for the vernal equinox. Maybe I'll leave the house before then and hunt up some pine lights, or lumens as the book calls them. Maybe I'll touch one. Maybe I won't. Maybe when the equinox comes, I'll return to Razorback Hill, to the bald spot. Maybe I'll look for John. He may be there. He may not. I may cross into the bald spot. I may not. And if I do, I may not come back. Or I may. I don't know what I'll do. I don't know anything anymore. I've come to the point now where I'm sure of only one thing. Nothing is sure anymore. At least on this side of the veil. There you go. I hope you enjoy the serial. If you want to see more serials, do let us know. Just drop us an email, starshipsover at gmail.com. 
So as you know, Worldcon is only a couple of weeks away in Melbourne, Australia. I certainly do know. But before that, apparently they're in New Zealand. National Science Fiction Convention. Au contraire. So if you're in Wellington, New Zealand, this weekend, please pop in. It's a little small science fiction convention, but well worth it. So we've got a story next by New Zealand author Hugh Cook coming up. Haven't heard of him? Well, I certainly didn't, but we've got a fact article by Dan Rabatz. And Grant assures me you should know this writer. Now, this article is nominated for a Sir Julius Vogel Award this year, and Hugh Cook is up for a Lifetime Achievement Award as well. So, special things down under. Hugh Cook, the wordsmith and the warrior. Hugh Cook might not be a name instantly recognised by readers of the fantasy genre, but to his legion of dedicated fans across the world, mention of the man in his work inspires a sense of reverence. Cook remains one of New Zealand's unsung heroes of fantasy literature, despite his achievements outshining those of many of our more well-known authors. Between 1986 and 1992, Cook released his Chronicles of an Age of Darkness series, a ten-book cycle of standalone fantasy novels. Set on a world ruled by bloodthirsty emperors, threatened by swarms of monsters and blessedly devoid of goblins and elves, the chronicles capture a history of Cook's lands and their people in a multitude of voices, spanning continents and all occurring roughly within the same time frame of a decade or two. Characters recur across the books, making cameo appearances from one story to the next, weaving a complex web of events that draws the reader through the series, however unrelated each volume may seem to be at a glance. Cook was among a group of authors who eschewed the traditions of Tolkien-esque high fantasy, choosing instead to write about the dark, unsavoury aspects of human nature and the grim harshness of a world bent on crushing the meek. In Cook's world, orcs are hunted for their blubber, and sea dragons are vain creatures who pretend to recite poetry in their sleep before sinking into snoring heaps. Empires are driven to war by syphilitic emperors who are in turn murdered by warring sons. Heroism is a constant theme, usually as a partner to vanity, folly and ultimately death, and can be summed up in the immortal line, vaunting their boasts with the blood of their lungs on their lips. Suffice to say that Cook rebelled, writing unorthodox fantasy in an unorthodox world. He dismantled old tropes and bent the genre like light through a smoked lens, he replaced the tired theme of good versus evil with one which instead pitted brutality against barbarism and rarely delivered a clear victor. Cook not only rejected the clichés of the fantasy genre, he subverted them with an almost malicious glee. To judge Cook's success by book sales alone would be misleading, but the numbers are certainly impressive at first glance. Altogether, the Chronicles sold around 450,000 copies, and that in itself is reason for celebration for any New Zealand author. The Wizards and the Warriors, together with its US incarnation, Wizard War, sold over 160,000 copies, a phenomenal sales record for any fantasy author. Unfortunately, as the Chronicles became less conventional and more obtuse, sales began to decline. This was compounded by the decision made by bookselling chain W.H. Smith to drop Cook's books from their shelves when sales slowed, which inevitably led to an even steeper fall. 
despite a rebounding of style and content in the last three books of the series towards more action-based storytelling, Cook had largely lost the means to supply to his mainstream audience, with sales for these three books falling to between 7,000 and 10,000 copies each. I bought all my copies of Hugh's books in my local Whitcalls here in New Zealand, where his books enjoyed pride of place on their shelves with every release. But if the books were not on the shelves overseas, then Cook's fans had little chance of finding them. Cook's prose drew heavily on the landscape, places, and mythology of New Zealand, from the legendary Tanifar of Quilth to the Mnati Moana, to a prison called Marimarimu, after Parimarimu in Auckland. Our native flora and fauna often made cameo appearances in wild locale, including weka, kauri, and rimu, to name just a few. All of this well over a decade before Peter Jackson delivered our country up to the world as Middle Earth. Cook refused to suffer from cultural cringe. He embraced our country's uniqueness and used it to flavour his own inimitable world and style. China Mieville, author of Pedido Street Station, sums Cook up nicely. Hugh Cook was one of the most inventive, witty, unflinching, serious, humane and criminally underrated writers in imaginative fiction, or anywhere. It remains a shame that so few New Zealanders know that Cook was a Kiwi writer, but there's good reason for this. Hugh Cook may have lived in New Zealand and written in New Zealand, but I suspect he saw the same tired faults with our nationalistic model of publishing and author recognition as he saw in the failure of the fantasy genre to redefine itself. Accordingly, after publishing Plague Summer here in 1980, he bypassed the New Zealand publishing model and went instead to the London market, where he secured publishing deals almost simultaneously for both his science fiction novel The Shift, Jonathan Cape, 1986, and the first volume in the Chronicle series, The Wizards and the Warriors, Corgi, 1986. What separated Cook from so many of his contemporaries was his ability to alter his prose style from book to book, while he never lost his unique authorial voice. Two of the chronicles, The Wishstone and the Wonderworkers, and The Wazir and the Witch, take the form of actual recorded histories thick with the idiosyncrasies of both the imaginary scribe and subsequent editors, and are thus peppered with redactions and long, apparently unrelated diatribes. These books are full of acerbic, dark wit and bleak philosophies, and represent in some ways Cook's ultimate success at writing fantasy that transcended the sword-and-sorcery models of the genre. For all their apparently random digressions beyond the story, these two books might be seen as the pinnacle of Cook's genius, for there is a depth to these tales that no amount of Feistian swashbuckling or Eddings-esque adventuring could rival. Some readers even suggested that Hugh Cook was not one writer but many, a collaboration of individuals writing in isolation, with a single grand design in mind. But Hugh Cook was just one man, a prolific author and poet, whose storytelling skills ascended beyond the formulaic norm into something infinitely more enduring. Ironically, it was these two books, with their challenging diversions into philosophy and metaphysics, that seemed to undermine Cook's mainstream success. Book sales for these two volumes showed a steep slide from his earlier highs and may have contributed to the W.H. Smith decision and its consequences for Cook's publishing career. Cook did with fantasy what hard science fiction does to that broader genre by delving into in-depth ruminations of the unknown and fantastical in the body of his storytelling. Cook teased apart the nature of magic and the supernatural as demi-scientific concepts 
as well as exploring the brutal underside of human nature, as represented by its practice in politics and warfare. Stark metaphors for the real world, despite being dished up in the barbaric super for fantasy setting. Apparently, booksellers suspected that works of this complexity and wisdom would not be appreciated by fans of the tales of blood-soaked armies, pirates and torturers that had preceded them. This was truly a pity. Cook's epic plan for a 60-book series was accordingly cut short, and after publishing the brilliant conclusion to the Chronicles, The Witch Lord and the Weapon Master, he went on to champion print-on-demand technology and electronic formats, constantly moving into newer and stranger worlds with his writing. He was among the first authors to publish works through Lulu.com with the Oceans of Light trilogy, and later, Cancer Patient. Even so, the Chronicles remain Cook's legacy, and copies of these volumes continue to fetch outlandish prices in second-hand book markets around the world. My own collection must be worth a small fortune, according to Amazon, but it is most certainly not for sale. Cook was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2005. He endured months of chemotherapy and radiation treatment in Auckland, which briefly sent the cancer into remission. During this ordeal, he wrote Cancer Patient, a collection of musings, poetry and recollections which document his struggle with the disease and what he learned about life and the human condition in the process. This book is available for free as an online ebook or as a download from zenvirus.com, one of Hugh's many websites. Unfortunately, in 2007 the cancer returned and Cook passed away on November the 8th, 2008, after bravely battling the disease for so many years. It is a testament to the scope of his fan base that the obituary I wrote for him, which was published in the New Zealand Herald and which I posted to my blog in December last year, remains one of my most frequently visited pages. Ultimately, Cook was both wordsmith and warrior. Poems, stories and characters were his tools and his weapons. He wrote with a passion, producing fiction at a prolific rate, and the English language would be greater enriched if all the words and terms he had coined in his oeuvre were to be introduced into the common parlance. He fought to find new ways forward in the publishing world, exploiting technologies that are only now starting to establish their true place in the electronic market. He maintained his integrity as an author to the very end, determined to always share the stories he had to tell, and not those that others wanted him to tell. At the end, he fought an unseen enemy, fought it and beat it, if only for a short time. Even in this he had a story to tell, one that may not have been able to completely defeat that insidious foe, but which may yet bring comfort to others who face those same demons at some stage. For those of you interested in reading Hugh Cook's work, samples and full-length copies of some of his books can be found at zenvirus.com. Also, keep an eye out for a reissue of The Walrus and the Warwolf, due for release in 2010 by Paizo Publishing, with an introduction by China Mieville. Walrus is recognised by Hughes fans as his finest hour and well worth a read by any lover of epic fantasy. To quote Mieville again, to honour the memory of this wonderful and generous-spirited writer and man, those, too bloody few, of us, who know his work, should do all we can to bring it to the world's attention. Hugh Walter Gilbert Cook, 1956-2008 to Wordsmith, Warrior, New Zealander. Man's first death is the random potential. 
of eons before conception, and the surf merging life with form. The surf is creation and rebirth. Cicada Sun, Landfall 118, 1976 So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is very proud to present Heroes of the Third Millennium by Hugh Cook Narrated by Dan Raybarts The reeling flicker of days slowed, steadied, froze A quick look around The time machine was sitting on grass. Beyond the grass, buildings. It was, recognisably, Central Park, Manhattan. With a huge sigh of relief, so far, no nuclear war, Jack Fabrax dismounted, clambering down onto the grass, lugging the heavy suitcase after him. God, what a weight! The time machine flickered and dissolved. It would return in precisely 72 hours. There was a slight risk involved in sending the time machine back to 1962. Conceivably, Kevin Kilderneath would work out what had happened. Conceivably, Kevin would climb aboard the time machine and chase Jack into the year 2003. But... But Jack wanted to have the option of going back to 1962, in case... Things didn't work out as expected in this brave new world, the world of the third millennium. Jack was sweating profusely by the time he manhandled the suitcase to the street. He stood there, watching for a taxi. But did they still have taxis in the third millennium? And would his greenbacks be valid currency? He had more than half expected shiny flying machines, the US dollar replaced by the credit or some such thing, and the people to be walking around in fancy aerodynamic robes, or nothing at all. But, outwardly at least, everything looked amazingly normal. The automobiles were styled differently, but were conceptually similar. And people still wore pants, shirts, shoes. Jack himself was dressed in a charcoal grey suit, a white shirt, a conservative tie, and nobody looked at him twice. A guy in a suit, just like his, walked by, talking to someone using a two-way radio, a dandy little gadget small enough to fit easily into the palm of your hand. Taxi! Jack had it all figured out. He would get the taxi to drive him round town. He would chat with the cabbie and find out the latest. The cab driver was a negro. A really black negro. Totally black. An amazing blackness which seemed to shimmer into blue. A woman. She had weird scars on her face. Patterned scars like a sergeant's chevrons. Someone cut her? Then why didn't she have plastic surgery? Empire State Building, said Jack. What? Empire State, the building. No dice. The negress asked a couple of questions, but her English was barely intelligible. She had to be drunk. Angrily, Jack got out of the cab hauled her suitcase out onto the sidewalk, slammed the door. How could anyone possibly not know the Empire State Building? Could it have been demolished? Torn down? Lost to memory? No, impossible. Three taxis later, Jack finally found a driver who spoke English. Sort of. 
The cabbie was from Afghanistan, wherever the hell that was, and took him along approximately familiar streets. The city's basic layout was still the same, to the Empire State Building. Outside the building, there were soldiers in strange, blotched uniforms who carried weapons which looked strangely light, like children's toys. Despite having figured out that inflation would brutalise his meagre cash reserves, Jack was shocked by the cab fare. He bought a paper, a copy of the New York Times, meaning to check first the date, second the news, and third the stock market prices. He really wanted to know, and know fast, just what his stock certificates were worth. The date? Thursday, 6th of November, 2003. The right date, then. The stock market? Well, it still existed. Against all the odds, the world had survived the threat of nuclear war, so far, and the stock market was still in operation. However, Jack could find no listings for his stocks. Okay, then, maybe the companies had changed their names. No problem. Work on that later. How about the news? Well, that was problematical. Sport was sport. That much was the same. Sport was still sport, food was still food, fashion was still fashion, and crime was still crime. But, apart from that, the news was unintelligibly weird, full of people and places and words and countries he had never heard of. Al Gore, Newt Gingrich, Nelson Mandela, Jason Race, Argan Vlastovich, Michael Jackson, Madonna, and... The artist formerly known as Prince? Who were these people? And if there was some guy formerly known as Prince, why the hell not say who he was now? And what was HIV? And the internet? And cyberspace? Ah, this makes sense. Ebola fever. A disease, evidently. Some kind of plague. But Bangladesh? A place, evidently. A city? A country? And how about this? African American. What's that? Okay, the woman in the taxi, straight out of Africa. That would explain that total skin. An American, straight out of Africa. An African American. Then he found an article he did understand. About Germany. Nazis in Germany had demonstrated in Berlin, had fought with the police, had desecrated Jewish graves. Reading this, he went cold. The hairs stood up on the back of his neck. Germany. Not East Germany or West Germany, but just straight Germany. In that moment of shock, a glimmering of understanding came to him. He had not arrived in the future at all. Instead, he had been precipitated into an alternate universe. In this alternate universe, there had been no Hitler, no Holocaust, and Germany had not been divided into two separate countries. In this alternate universe, the terrors of fascism belong not to the past, but to the present. Not the future, but an alternate universe. That was his thesis, and a second article confirmed it. A dry, boring article about an economic agreement between Russia, Ukraine and Belarusia which was being negotiated in St. Petersburg. Evidently, in this alternate universe, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics did not exist. There had never been a Lenin, so St. Petersburg had not become Leningrad. Presumably, 
there had never been a second world war either. And, in this alternate universe, his stock certificates were probably useless. The companies, no listings for them on the stock exchange, probably did not even exist. That meant he had no resources but the metal in the suitcase. The realisation came as an appalling shock. He had figured it out so nicely. A little jump into the future, just 41 years, enough time for his enemies to die and for his stocks to fatten up, but not enough time for civilization to change out of recognition. But he had got it wrong. I need a cigarette, said Jack. He pulled out a cigarette and lit up. Then, feeling hungry, he walked into an eatery, lugging his suitcase with him. As he walked into the eatery, all conversation stopped. People looked at him and stared. Immediately, Jack realised something was wrong. Hideously wrong. He had made some dreadful mistake. He glanced down at his fly, half convinced everything down there was hanging out in public. But, no, it was all in order. He was a respectable guy in a suit. His first impulse was to run. But, no! This was America, dammit! He was an American citizen, a citizen of the free world, and there was no way he was going to be run off by a bunch of people staring at him. Besides, if something was wrong, he had to find out what. So Jack walked up to the counter, cleared his throat. <clears throat> hamburger, he said. Give me a hamburger. Yeah, and a coffee. Black. The guy behind the counter turned to his colleague. The two spoke together briefly in a language which was unmistakably Russian. Russian? What the hell were a couple of Russians doing serving food here in New York? You want ketchup on the burger? Yeah. Jack paid for his food, took it to a table, went back for the suitcase, then sat down to eat. As he did so, a woman got to her feet. She walked toward him, a very beautiful blonde, immaculately coiffed. As she approached, he smelled her perfume. Her eyes were an icy blue. She was an angelic vision of Nordic perfection. Only one thing was wrong. She was not smiling. Hi, said Jack, speaking without bothering to remove the cigarette from his lips. Without a word, the woman reached out. She plucked the cigarette from his lips, then stubbed it out on his hamburger. Hey, said Jack, half rising. Angrily, he grabbed her by the wrist. In response, with her free hand, she sprayed him with something from a little aerosol can. He breathed red flame, and his world dissolved into a reeling whirl of agony. It was like when he had dived into that pool, back when he was a kid, and there had been too much chlorine in the water. The same watering pain in his eyes, only worse. Slowly, choking, gasping, lungs heaving, Jack began to recover. Then one of the countermen approached him. Mister, said the counterman, in heavy Russian-accented English, you better get out. If you come back, I'll call the cops. Sure, said Jack, grabbing his suitcase. Sure, sure, I'm going. Out on the street, he put down the suitcase and mopped his sweating brow. This was crazy. Something had gone dreadfully wrong back there, but what? He reviewed his own behaviour. All utterly, totally normal. 
And now, out on the street, nobody was taking any notice of him, but for a couple of panhandlers. A hell of a lot of beggars on the street, now he thought about it. His clothing, though it came from 1962, was not significantly different from what conservative business types were wearing here in 2003. Jack took a good look at those people. A hell of a lot of Asians on the street. Tourists, or what? And a lot of Mexican types, too, some speaking Spanish as they went by. Also, a muttering lunatic, a patently deranged man in rags, who was talking to himself pretty loudly, gesticulating as he did so. Nobody called the cops to have the guy taken back to the nuthouse. Instead, everyone ignored the mad muttering lunatic, as if a dementing lunatic standing on the sidewalk in broad daylight in the middle of New York was the most natural thing in the world. Some weird sights, then. But... There were still guys who looked just like Jack Fabrax. White guys in suits. Yet, somehow, the locals had picked him as abnormal, aberrant, in a truly intolerable way. Why? The only thing he could think of, maybe they thought he was queer. Yeah, that was possible. Maybe, in this brave new world, Only sexually abnormal people wore business suits. That thought made Jack truly uncomfortable. He wished there was someone he could ask, someone who could explain it all to him. But time enough to figure it out later. Right now? Business. Money was a priority. The suitcase was full of gold, and now it was time to start changing that gold to cash. Then he could start looking for information. And if necessary, for a new set of clothes. Inside of half an hour, phone, phone book, taxi, Jack found his way to a pawn shop, showed just one gold wedding ring. You got some ID? A routine question, low-key, bored. But it riveted him, shocked him rigid. Yeah, yeah, hang on, must have left it in the car. And he backed out. Still reeling. Identity. He'd never thought of the problem. Why not? Because it was totally insoluble. Outside, a guy was hanging around, muttering stuff to passers-by. Strange stuff. You want Jash? Amy's? Soft? You want Jubes, man? Desperate enough to chance anything, Jack moved closer. He wanted to kind of inconspicuously drift closer But that was impossible because of the weight of the suitcase. It was killing him. He was one red mass of flushed sweat. What do you want, man? What have you got? said Jack cautiously. Anything, man. How about a gun? said Jack, too nervous to ask for what he really wanted. Sure, man. Get you a Glock. Get you anything. A Glock? Might be anything. A third millennium ray gun. A death ray super blaster, annihilated tank at half a mile with its zap ray. The alien name carried with it the authentic thrill of the new. But, no, he didn't really want a gun. Not right now. Come on, man, what do you want? ID, said Jack, unable to conceal his nervousness. Five hundred bucks, get you a green card, driver's license, social security number. Five hundred, he said. His shock was genuine, unconcealable. Five hundred would clean him out. Hard on the heels of shock came anger. 
Five hundred? You gotta be kidding. Okay, okay, chill, man, chill. They settled on two fifty. Maybe too high. Jack got the impression he was getting the wrong end of the bargain, and he did not like, no, not one little bit, the visit to the grimy back room where they took his photo and produced the documents. But he got out alive, complete with ID. And the ID he had purchased was good enough, at least for the pawnbroker. Five pawn shops later, slow and cautious does it, Jack was feeling better. All going to plan. He had done it. He had worked as Big Swindle back in 1962, and he had got away clean, escaping in the mad professor's time machine. Okay, so maybe his stock certificates were useless. If the newspaper stock market listings could be trusted, the tobacco companies in which he had so astutely invested simply did not exist in this alternate universe. But gold was still gold, money was still money, money could evidently buy anything, and he was going to be rich enough to start over. Only problem now? He was right out of cigarettes. But okay, there was a barber shop just across the road. Jack crossed the street, went inside, looked for the cigarettes, and saw them, okay? Grey pasteboard packets with no brand names. Just the bare, unadorned label, cigarettes, in black, and a message in red saying, These things kill you. Two packets, said Jack, gesturing. See your paper? You know, your paper. No, said Jack. I don't understand. I just want some cigarettes, okay? Okay, you want the cigarettes. I need to see your paper. My what? Your paper, man. Your prescription. Prescription? Said Jack, bewildered. You are a registered addict, right? Right? Hey, you, I'm talking to you. You're an addict or what? You a cop? No, said Jack. I'm not a cop. Then you get out of here. You don't get out. I'm calling the cops right now. Back on the sidewalk, Jack started to figure it out. In this alternate universe, smoking was quasi-illegal. Or was it? He wavered between belief and disbelief. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe there was just something weird about that particular barbershop. That particular guy. Face facts, said Jack. You just don't know. Okay then, it was time to do some serious research. Go to the library, that was it. In this alternate universe, the Empire State Building was in the same place, so the library should be in the same place too. Only, it wasn't. Well, the steps were there, and the lions, but the rest of it was a bomb crater, roped off with yellow plastic tape. Jack stood there staring, stunned. What are you looking at? Realising his mouth was open, Jack closed it. Blinked, focused on the stranger who had addressed him. A girl. Well, sort of. Pretty weird looking girl. A blonde with a bunch of rings in her nose and a ring through her eyebrow and a semi-pornographic tattoo of a big-breasted mermaid writhing up the side of her neck. Hi, said Jack, weakly. Yeah, she said. Hi. Then she laughed as if he had said something outrageously funny and stuck out her tongue at him. With shock, Jack saw there was cold white metal riveted right through her tongue. Sick, sick, sick. Really psycho stuff. A pretty girl, and she had stuck something right through her tongue. 
Then something clicked. Suddenly, Jack understood. The dementing lunatic he had seen talking, almost shouting, on the street. The incomprehensible, disoriented cab drivers who scarcely seemed to know Broadway from Fifth Avenue. The insane Nordic woman with the staring blue eyes who had stubbed out his cigarette on his hamburger. The guy at the barbershop who, bizarrely, had demanded a prescription when he asked to buy cigarettes. It all made sense. All the data hung together. Given one simple insight, given one simple thesis, Jack was suddenly able to organise a thousand different pieces of data into one simple, internally consistent picture. Now he had a simple explanation of everything. New York had been converted into one big lunatic asylum. Obviously. Ah, said Jack. Ah, Eureka! I have it. Now I understand. That was why nobody had called the cops to take away the dementing lunatic. The guy did not have to be taken to the asylum because he was already in the asylum, together with the madwoman with the staring eyes who had tried to gas Jack with her third millennium aerosol weapon, his eyes were still sore and smarting, and the psycho kid with the mutilated tongue. That, doubtlessly, explained why armed soldiers were guarding the Empire State Building. The building was, presumably, the administrative headquarters of the Lunatic Asylum, a place to which the inmates were forbidden access. Once in cancer, said the girl. Some what? said Jack. You smoke. I do? Your hands, your teeth. Jack's fingers were, in a way which was not uncommon in 1962, stained with nicotine. His teeth, likewise. You selling cigarettes? said Jack. Twenty bucks, one packet. Even allowing for inflation, that was an incredible price. But Jack was down to his last cigarette. Deal, he said, producing a twenty. In response, the girl dipped her hand into her crotch. Her crotch! Jack reeled. She was wearing a man's jeans. Yes, he was not hallucinating it. A man's jeans with the zip going right up the front, following the line of her... her... The twenty was gone, snatched away, and the cigarettes were in Jack's hand. He dropped them. He felt sick. A pretty girl, and she was dressed in this sick, totally obscene, lesbian fashion. And Jack had a clear contrasting vision of his lost sweetheart, the adorable Amy Zebraluda, whose pants had little zips on the side, little zips which, consonant with feminine modesty, made no obvious reference to her... her... You don't want them? The girl stooped, reached down for the cigarettes. Jack stepped on them, keeping them safe. Despite their provenance, he was going to keep them. He needed his nicotine. Okay then, said the girl. And she was gone, retreating down the street. After fifty yards, she turned and made a rude sign. Yes, more evidence. He was trapped in a lunatic asylum, that was for sure. Spare me one. A man's voice. Who? Turning, Jack saw a bearded man who looked as if he was dressed for a hunting trip. Sure, said Jack, relieved by the normality of the encounter, the normality of someone trying to bum a cigarette off him. Jack opened the packet and the stranger took a cigarette. Jack lit it for him with his gold lighter. 
You're a brave man, said the bearded guy. It's a free country, said Jack. Is it? Well, said Jack, considering. It should be. Yeah, said the bearded guy. You hunt, said Jack. Sure thing, said the bearded guy. Me too, said Jack, establishing some common social ground, disowning his charcoal grey suit. Sarnak Lakes, ever heard of them? Sure, said the bearded guy. Up near Mount Marcy. Jack got the impression that he had bridged the sartorial gap which separated them. They had established common ground. They were both hunters, woodsmen, smokers of tobacco. So, said Jack, gesturing at the bombed-out ruins of the library, when did this happen? Where are you from? said the bearded man. Me? said Jack. He wavered, poised on the edge of fiction, then decided to risk the truth. He needed to find out what was going on in this alternate universe. And fast. I'm... I'm from the past. Kind of. An alternate universe. I'm from 1962. That's so? Yeah, I, uh, came in a time machine. Aliens help you? Aliens? said Jack, startled. No, there was this guy, Angus Void, mad professor type. He built this, this time machine. You sure you're not with the aliens? I'm sure. The bearded man looked around as if checking for hidden observers. Name's Vance, he said. I'm with the militia. The militia? said Jack. Not here, said Vance. You come with me. They ended up in a place in Brooklyn, where the streets were full of people speaking Russian. Vance explained the site had been carefully chosen. Last place anyone would look for us. Once they were safe in the hideout, up above a karaoke bar, whatever karaoke was, Jack told his story. Jack expected resistance. Skepticism. But, to his surprise, Vance accepted the entire story without a single objection, as if time travellers from the past were no big surprise. Vance seemed to have, how to put it, a special capacity for belief. A special capacity to filter information and automatically to know what was true and what was not. With relief, just to confess was a relief, and to confess and be believed was a double relief, Jack told everything. How he fell in love with Amy Zebraluda, the mad professor's beautiful female assistant. How he lost Amy to Kevin Culderneath, his slick and very rich rival. How he took revenge by conning Kevin, swindling him out of millions. The bulk of the money went into tobacco stocks, and some he converted to gold. Then he stole the professor's time machine and fled into the future. Or so I thought, said Jack, but something's out of whack. This place is strange beyond comprehension. I need someone to explain. I need to know what's going on. Okay then, said Vance. You've come to the right guy. Then Vance explained. In this universe, America was ruled by a totalitarian federal government which had a lock grip on newspapers and television. The government had been infiltrated by space aliens and was using a much dreaded fleet of black helicopters to organise mass abductions of unsuspecting citizens. 
Once the aliens got hold of the citizens, they were subjected to unspeakable medical practices, including torture and brainwashing. The aliens' long-term strategy was to use the resources of the federal government to break the will of the people to resist and to take away their weapons. Assault rifles, machine guns, flamethrowers, shoulder-launched rockets, all confiscated in outright defiance of the Constitution. Once America's strength had been broken by a combination of brainwashing and disarmament, the alien invasion fleet, currently waiting out in the Oort cloud, would land openly, and the conquest would proceed. At first, Jack found this stuff hard to believe. It was, well, from the perspective of a nice, normal guy from 1962, it was wacky. No other word for it. Like old-fashioned science fiction from back in the 1950s, the 1940s, whenever. You don't believe me, huh? said Vance. I didn't say that, said Jack. Jack, said Vance dropping his voice to a conspiratorial whisper. You know what a computer is? Sure, said Jack. Uh, you know, adding machine. Well, thinking machine, that's more like it. IBM. In my world, we got this company, IBM. Yeah, IBM, okay, we got IBM too. Jack, let me show you something. Then Vance took Jack into the secret room and showed him the computer, which was like a TV screen hooked up to a special kind of typewriter. You can use this, said Vance, over the telephone, talk to other people. The internet, that's what we call it. Federal government, they got the newspapers, the TV, but we've got the internet. It was a simple concept, and Jack got the hang of it inside of five minutes. The computers talked to each other, and there was no way the federal government could stop it. There were just too many machines, too many telephone lines. They got a bunch of new laws, said Vance. Arrest us, switch us off, shut us down, throw us in jail. But, bottom line is, they can't stop us. It took another five minutes for Jack to learn how to actually use the internet. Then Vance gave him a list of internet addresses and left him to it. For two days solid, Jack hid out in Brooklyn, chain-smoking black market cigarettes and burrowing deeper and deeper into the revelations of the internet. Alien landings. Alien spaceships hiding behind comets. Supposed American senators who were actually aliens in disguise. The miracle of recovered memory which had allowed a defiant human spirit to fight back against the invaders. Recipes for helping you determine if you yourself had actually been an alien at some stage of your personal evolution. In the closed claustrophobic confines of the hideout, the constant reiteration of the hideous truth was overwhelming. It was all there. Anatomical drawings of aliens, diagrams of alien spaceships, recordings covertly made of interrogations in which aliens grilled captured citizens, the secret plans used to brief the crews of the black helicopters, the federal government's protocols for the planned establishment of the concentration camps. The secret Russian bases, complete with Russian tanks, which had already been built on American soil with the connivance of the American government. The vision of New York as one big lunatic asylum had already been forgotten. Instead, Jack was in the grip of a much more persuasive, much better documented explanation of everything. An essentially simple, internally consistent picture 
which gave him a hard grip on the confused, fragmented, and at times totally bizarre reality he had encountered on the streets. Overwhelmed by the impact of the internet, Jack forgot all about checking out the history of tobacco stocks or inquiring into the rise of the Nazis in Germany. His attention was entirely given over to the authoritative, immaculately presented, intensely detailed accounts of horror brought to him by the internet. In the face of this horror, the militias were fighting back. The militias were secret armies consisting of people like Vance, having begun their campaign of armed resistance by blowing up federal buildings and assassinating federal officials, they were now moving into a new phase of freedom fighting, escalating their campaign by targeting foreign embassies, nuclear power stations, airports, subway trains, and prominent public buildings of any description. So, said Vance at last, what do you think? I'll level with you, said Jack. Yeah, it's like this, said Jack, taking a big breath. I can't handle it. I've got to go back. I'll be in big trouble, but it's better than this. Hey, said Vance, it's your life. I won't stand in your way. And so, 72 hours after his arrival, Jack was standing there on the grass of Central Park, waiting for the time machine to return. Vance was there too, together with a couple of his militia buddies, all three of them equipped with absurdly small cameras with which to film the scene. On schedule, the time machine shimmered into existence. Only there was something wrong. The time machine arrived in a cloud of dust and smoke, and from it there breathed a dreadful stench of burnt hair and roasted flesh. The thing in the driving seat grimaced at Jack, its seared face one mass of burns. Jack, said the thing. It was Kevin. Kevin Culdeneath. Kevin, his rival, the man who had stolen Amy's heart. Kevin, said Jack. What happened? They nuked us, said Kevin. Nuclear war, Jack. Nuclear war. And then he said no more, because he was dead. In the ensuing silence, Jack heard crackling flames and realised the time machine was well alight. It was burning. No way to put out the flames. No way to build another one. The designer of the time machine, Angus Void, was undoubtedly dead. Back in the world which Jack had come from, the world of 1962, the conflict between the monolithic tyranny of the Soviet bloc and the free world had proceeded to its inevitable conclusion. A nuclear exchange which must, surely, have reduced the world to ruin. And Jack was stuck here forever, stuck in an alternate universe in which New York had been taken over by people from Russia, Mexico and the heart of Africa, in which space aliens had subverted the Constitution of the United States of America, and a tyrannous federal government had set out to crush the rights of the people, making cigarette smokers into abhorred criminals, and forcing free speech to retreat to the internet. Hey, said a cop arriving at the run. What happened? No idea, said Vance. We just got here. Get anything on video, said the cop, glancing at the little cameras. No, said Vance. We were too late. Then, as a growing crowd began to gather, Vance and his buddies discreetly retreated, taking Jack with them. Well, said Vance, 
Why do you want to do? It was an easy question to answer. Back in the world Jack had come from, the lost world of 1962, the free world had been prepared to risk nuclear war to defy the Soviet Union. In this alternate universe, freedom, free speech, constitutional rights were surely still worth fighting for. To Jack, his destiny was plain. It was to join the militia, the heroes of the third millennium. Me, said Jack, I'm with you. And they took it from there. First published in Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine, December 1998. There you go. Again, copyrights. You cooks. Grant, Dan, thank you so much. That is Aura Delight, show 150. The date when I announced Starship Sova's volume 2, 10-10-2010. Just flows off the tongue. Do stick around. Thank you to all the people who's taking part in Starship Sova's show. Fantastic. Until next week when we will be announcing the writers, all the writers on Starship Sova's Volume 2. Look out for that. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa. A fatly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.